This conversation was recorded live on stage at the Sydney Opera House as part of the Festival of Dangerous Ideas, a weekend of challenging, inspiring and robust discussions with powerful speakers from around the world. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Festival of Dangerous Ideas. I'm Anne Mossop from the Sydney Opera House, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you here, our panellists, David Ma and Annabelle Crabb. This afternoon's session is being live-streamed to a fantastic range of venues around Australia. Canberra Theatre Centre, Blackdown City Libraries, Broken Hill City Library, The Glasshouse, Port Macquarie, The Joan in Penrith, <coughs> Merigong Theatre Company, Museum of the Riverina in Wagga Wagga, Riverside Theatres in Parramatta, Tari Library, the Windsong Pavilion in Bermagui, <laughs> the Western Plains Cultural Centre Dubbo, Alice Springs, Darwin Public Library, Darwin Library, James Cook University uh, in Cairns and in Townsville, and the City Library in Annabelle's hometown, Adelaide. So welcome Woo! all of you around Australia. <laughs> This is a heavy responsibility. It's a heavy responsibility. I'd like to acknowledge that we meet on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and pay my respects to their elders, past and present. We're here this afternoon to talk about the government we deserve. The fact that, uh, well, whichever way we vote, politicians say the electorate gets it right at the ballot box. <laughs> a self-interested statement, perhaps. Uh, and cynics are more inclined to think that we get the government we deserve. So we're here to ask, did we get it right this time? What does the election tell us about our relationship with our political leaders and what we think of them? And to answer that very critical question, are we a nation that can't make up its mind? <laughs> Annabel is here this week, fresh from a week in Parliament in Canberra. So there will be some uh, special views on what's been happening there. As you know, she's one of Australia's most popular political commentators, presenter of Kitchen Cabinet, columnist, ABC's chief online reporter, Twitter legend, um, author of books including The Rise of the Rudbot, don't we all remember that book, and the 2014 bestseller, The Wife Drought. But Annabelle's empire is branching out. For those of you who love Kitchen Cabinet, may I recommend a touch of Aldesco, the politicians who don't get to cook, but just you get to have their sandwich lunch with them, and uh, her fantastic podcasts with Lee Sales. David Marr, a journalist, biographer, written for every newspaper worth writing for in Australia, currently writing for The Guardian, the author of Patrick White, A Life, the amazing collection of Patrick White's letters, biography of Garfield Barwick, um, The High Price of Heaven, Dark Victory, and his quarterly essays, um, really chronicling our political uh, leaders and our political life. Most recently, of course, they're both here because, in fact, they have written very elegant and telling essays <laughs> on Bill Shorten and Malcolm Turnbull. When we started talking about this session, this was before the July election and its results were anywhere near us. And we were thinking, we have unique insight into the two people who are competing to lead this country, who represent our two major political parties. And we thought of having a session called Wrong Again, given the prevailing, the prevailing mood of um, 
what I think Annabelle has quoted uh, a pollster as describing as buyer's remorse. <laughs> when PJ O'Rourke was here to talk about the American elections and uh, the audience were getting a bit frisky, kind of teasing him about having Trump as a candidate, he said, you people have had five prime ministers in six years. You know, you can't talk. Um, so we wanted to really look at what this moment in the political cycle means and what an understanding of what has happened in the election, what we know about those political leaders can tell us. It's been very interesting to say, see the way this rather turbulent period of politics has been chronicled. It, it, it's in, you know, Greek or Roman terms, tragedy, hubris, the rise and fall of, you know, leader X or leader Y. Um, and with a sense of the inevitable downfall or rise. So we're going to look for some of the causes. Um, but we did feel that as we really got to the election and realised that we would be sitting here having this conversation after the election, wrong again did feel unduly mean and pessimistic. <laughs> really? Well, <laughs> I mean, that's what the brilliant thing is about having it after the first week of government. You know, that we might be heaven forbid, being calling into question a new government who might have only committed the crime of being elected. But we now have a government where we have a week of track record, surely enough to make up our minds. <laughs> and we've seen absolutely firsthand how finely balanced um, this, uh, this government is. Tony Abbott called the Senate feral in 2015 and uh, I think the conclusion is that this Senate makes that feral Senate look very tame and polite. So, let's open up this conversation about the government we deserve. We will have a discussion. There'll be time for questions from you. Um, there are four microphones in the auditorium at the bottom of each of these sections here. So, get your questions ready um, and, uh, and let's take off. If we think about the idea of the government we deserve, um, what we're thinking, what we're recognising is that there are two parties in this relationship. There's the government, there's the electorate. And instead of sitting here and saying, we hate all politicians, we don't trust them, government is not doing what we want to do, <coughs> it forces us to ask ourselves, well, who are we as an electorate and what's our responsibility for those people that we've elected? How do you rate us as an electorate? How responsible are we as I voters? I think we're hilarious as an electorate. <laughs> I actually think that um, Australian voters are collectively incredibly perspicacious in the um, decisions that we make. And we have a really horrible sense of humour as well. I mean, we love nothing better, even in good times too, where we wander into the ballot box and get out that House of Reps voting paper and crisply do away with the business of actually electing yeah, a party to government, then we sort of pick up that bed sheet uh, that is the Senate voting paper and lick the pencil and proceed to lower into place the most horrendous composition in the Senate to haunt the dreams of the people that we've just elected to... Uh, <laughs> To, to dominate the lower house. And, you know, this has been a ridiculous decade in politics. You know, we've had um, 
more, um, we've had as many prime ministers over the last 10 years as we had in the first 10 years after federation. We've never had since uh, that many prime ministers in such a short time until now. Um, even, in the, um, even in the troubled times where we've sort of swapped them over rather regularly, never as many as in um, this last 10 years. And the last few elections I kind of see as um, the, the results are kind of like cries for help to passers-by from the window of a speeding car, you know. Um, you, the electorate is trying to get out uh, a message, and the most eye-catching way that we can collectively deliver it is to um, put together um, a bunch of crazy people um, and have them in the Senate. That's my opinion. Does that answer your question? I think you've taken a very entertaining way to tell us that we are schizophrenic, <laughs> convoluted in our thinking, and rather cruel. But uh, Or nihilistic, actually, almost. Yeah. Because we've got to the point as an electorate, and yes, I will let you talk in a minute, darling. It's all no, right. it's, Suck I, it. I'm lapping this up. <laughs> David's very underprepared, so he's quite happy for me to just yabber on, right? Is that... Mm. No? <laughs> That can be said of both of us. Lamentably. Perhaps I could start now. <laughs> yes, you could. I knew I should have sat in the middle. <laughs> no, I think that... Um, no, I've forgotten what I was... I've actually forgotten what I was going to say anyway, so that's, uh, that's actually quite handy. David! <laughs> Looking back now, I realise that it was on election day itself that it was clear that something terrible was going on. I live in the inner west, and it's not unusual to see at the local primary school where we vote, matching boys and matching dogs coming to vote, matching women and matching dogs coming to vote, and there's a sausage sizzle there, which, in fact, there were two sausage sizzles this time. There was the plain sausage sizzle, and there was the gourmet sausage sizzle, <laughs> side by side. What about the vegan I one? I was going to say the no, vegan. No, oddly enough, there wasn't a vegan one. There seemed to be a bit of a feeling that the vegans could bring their own. But <laughs> it, it, it the, I mean, frankly, I would like to know the high, I, I believe, a very high correlation between veganism and the people who fill in every number on the Senate form. <laughs> I think most of those are vegans. A but show of hand? Not... That's because they don't have to hold a sausage with their other hand. That's right. And because they have all of the energy that only eating fruit and nuts gives you <laughs> to, to make the kinds of choices that you've just condemned for the Senate. But what troubled me then and troubles me more now, looking back, as a clue to what was going to happen for the next three years, was the woman who had brought her pet ferret to the... To, I, said, I said, what is that? It was on her neck. And, uh, and she looked at me as if I were a fool um, and said, it's my ferret, um, and then went in to vote. And I was troubled then and I'm troubled now by the kinds of choices Australia made. And I have in my mind's eye the notion that all kinds of strange, tame wildlife was being taken to ballot boxes across Australia, which is the explanation for what has happened. And that what Australia wanted and what Australia has got is precisely the outcome it required, which is 
a highly comic, evenly, evenly weighed contest which will roll on for the next three years, keeping us all immensely amused. There will be times of worry, you know, there will be things that we worry about. Yes, it is a little bit worrying not to be able to pass a budget. We haven't been able to pass a budget now for three or four years. Um, it's like having gallstones, isn't it? <laughs> Being unable to pass a budget. It's not quite have as lots painful. lots of prune juice and then... Yeah. I the, the pain factor would yeah. be. It's like another person being unable to pass a gallstone rather than yourself. But, <laughs> but there will be, there will be um, you know, sombre people in the community who want things like budgets passed. But, but for the rest of us, there is a deliberately contrived contest here that will provide spectacles like last week in the federal parliament. I mean... That I mean, what a... Are you, were, you were in the building. Are you in any sense responsible no, sir, I, for the mischief? I started driving and I didn't turn around. I listened to it on the radio. It was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so you, last week started with a huge prominence in the newspapers on Tuesday of the terrible fall in the primary vote of the Liberal Party, which turned out to be 0.5 of 1%. Mm. Yep. Yep. When you spend a lot of money on a poll, you've got to make a massive headline yep. out of it, even if it says nothing. And a dramatic decline in um, Malcolm Turnbull's personal popularity, but it got much more dramatic from then on. No, let's not. Let's be very... You, you mentioned before several of the classical tropes. You mentioned, for instance, tragedy. You didn't mention comedy, which is the other great trope. And what we had this week was comedy on a scale um, that I think is kind of energising, really, <laughs> that, that the Prime Minister did not know where his ministers were, <laughs> that they had just wandered off home. Um, I love that one of them went to Melbourne to attend a late-breaking AFP secret raid that had been done and reported the day before. Yep, yep. <laughs> but he that was good enough. That about... But he was the kind of gent who got on a plane and came back again. I mean, and to that be was, reprimanded. That was sweet of him. Um, but the look on the Prime Minister's face, I mean, you know, those of us who've known Malcolm for years can remember when he was a young journalist, and it was the kind of look on his face when he had a column rejected by the bulletin. You know, it's disbelief, but, and searching somewhere for a lesson in there to learn. Um, and... The lesson may be that if you don't have many troops, you should have them carefully mustered at all times. <laughs> I'm sure Christopher will fix it. Ah, uh, but that's a South Australian talking. You see, he's a very busy man. He's got to get a $30 billion submarine um, boondoggle through. Oh, no. I mean, South Australia's not going to know what to do with the money. Um, but us, yes, he has other responsibilities. But the look on Bill Shorten's face. When I started work writing a quarterly essay on Bill Shorten, it seems like 10 years ago, but it was only last year, he was not a big smiler. <laughs> he certainly does seem to have got happier in recent times. Yeah. Since I think he's become Prime Minister, it's really improved. <laughs> it really has. So let's start, so, so we, we have the government that we deserve if we were aiming for a really great laugh. Um, Can I just leave you with, I mean, I know I'm interrupting and I'm sorry about that. No. Um, but I, for me, the comic moment of the week and the great visual image of the week actually was not 
um, Peter Dutton running into a closed door. <laughs> did you see um, no, that fabulous that. photograph? A closed of, door. Of Dutton looking through the chamber doors, having just missed the division. It was really... <laughs> and, um, and, you know... Now there he knows is nothing... what exile is all about. Well... <laughs> Very good. For me, the moment, the visual moment of the week was, I mean, please tell me you saw the video of the discussion between Tony Abbott and Pauline Hanson. So this is the man that Pauline Hanson blames for her term of imprisonment. And he wandered around to her office uh, during the week, uh, joining the queue of um, government ministers um, to, to make up with her. And they decided to, to video that moment for some reason. And then, so making it the second weirdest video that Pauline Hanson's ever made. Um, and it's just the two of them saying awkwardly to each other, yes, well, um, nice to see you, yes, nice to see you, etc. Um, but that was the flavour of the week for me, was watching um, a whole lot of ministers doing their very best to make friends with One Nation. Um, uh, George Brandis had a little party in his office for the crossbench senators and um, took the special Rolling step of buying cheesels for One Nation, which I thought was <laughs> very considerate. Um, they did, they brought cheesels. So I thought, <laughs> like that. Every good party. But you can't pass up as comic images of last week, Darren Hinge. <laughs> That was pretty excellent. And have, just having Darren Hinch in the Senate for three years is, is worth the price of admission. Yeah. <laughs> He's a bit limpy. He has to be on the ground floor quite close to the chamber because just after he recovered from the liver cancer that was days from killing him before he had the transplant of a, I don't know, child's liver or something and then recovered his health, he went helicopter ski... He went helicopter mountain biking down a mountain, which is this... Does anyone know about this thing? Apparently, when you've run out of other things to do in the world ever, you get um, on a mountain bike and then you get sort of winched up a mountain or sort of flown up a mountain by a helicopter, dropped at the top, and then you have to bike down. Oddly enough, he broke every bone in his body doing so, um, and the leg is the last bit to heal, so he's a bit hobbly. Can't I, just, can't I throw help that detail in man. for your can't own help education. It man. means nothing politically, but it's just sort of... Now, we're going to let Anne ask a question now, because I, no, I reckon I she's right. got something serious to ask her. No, no, you've come a long way for this. <laughs> All the way from your office. Which is, in fact, at the other end of Circular Quay. So. Oh, sorry. <laughs> um, let's just talk a little bit about Turnbull and Shorten. If we're thinking about what we're looking for in our political leaders and what we have got, you've written... I mean, they're both incredibly interesting and entertaining. They have curious commonalities. Strangely enough, both men emerge as consummate deal-makers. Um, perhaps not a coincidence. I want to find out, what did you find out from writing these books that you didn't know about them before? Malcolm Turnbull, you know, David has des described Shorten as a puzzle, an enigma compared to Turnbull, whose life has been lived much more in the public domain. But this very interesting, um, you know, through both of these essays, you can see these are people you know, whose, whose, whose political careers you're familiar with, but you go that layer deeper to find out what it is that you know, I, on our behalf, I guess, what we couldn't see without that attentive observation. 
Well, I found out just so many things about Malcolm Turnbull that I didn't know um, when I started writing about him, and some of them are just so deliciously funny. Um, one of them being that he was, as a young man, very interested in Jack Lang, um, the sort of rather poisonous former um, New South Wales Premier, now dead, um, but wasn't dead when Malcolm was younger. Um, and Quite he dead. used to go and talk to Lang, um, who lived until his 90s and used to keep this little office in the city and he would take visitors, usually young Labour people, going up there to sort of sit at his knee and drink in the poison. Um, but Malcolm was very interested in him too and um, used to go up there with a tape recorder and apparently there are still tape recordings around um, of these encounters but um, uh, whenever I've tried to um, uh, access them I'm assured that they can't be found in the house. <laughs> but um, Malcolm um, as a young man got together with Bob Ellis with whom he was very injudiciously quite friendly at the time, um, and they decided to write a musical about um, Jack Lang. I know, I know, I quite agree. And then, um, and so bits of it sort of survive. Um, I mean, I only have Ellis's word for this, and he emailed me some fragments of it um, before he very sadly died. Um, and... I showed them to Malcolm, who said that, oh, I'm sure that's not, oh, I don't recognise that bit, because it was all about, I think there were some odd scenes involving Hitler. It's very odd. I go into it in the book. <laughs> but um, what I really learned about Turnbull, and I have had no reason since to revisit that view, is that he is absolutely unlike most Liberal Party politicians. Not only in that he was a great pal of Bob Ellis's and obviously a great pal of Neville Rand's and probably has more close friends who were high-profile Labour people. I mean, it was um, Bob Carr and um, Helena who um, went on a double date with Malcolm Turnbull and his new girlfriend Lucy for the first time when Malcolm was trying to impress this lovely girl. So, I mean, they have lots of friendships mm. in the Labour Party that go back way back. Uh, and that's really unusual because mainly people who go on to be liberal politicians and leaders at that age are sort of, um, you know, branch stacking in campus. Young liberals? Young liberals. You know young the liberals. look of a young liberal? You know, you can see them coming. Have you ever They read... wear suits. They're 22 and they wear suits and they're really scrubbed up. Have you ever read that book um, by John Hyde Page, who's now a barrister, um, called The Education of a Young Liberal? It's one of the greatest books about um, young pup politicians playing terrible tricks on each other that I've ever read. And the great thing about it, this book, it was written, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, um, is that it features, as its major characters, half of the people that are now in the federal parliament. <laughs> so it's just, it gives and gives. And every time a new one of them gets elected to the, um, to the parliament, I go back and reread it and enjoy it again. But Turnbull is not like that. He's had this unbelievably um, broad life that has involved intersections with all sorts of crazy people. You know, he's worked for more um, bonkers media magnates than you or I has ever met. Um, he's done things like go prospecting for gold in Siberia, um, pursue strange business interests in China, start cleaning businesses. I mean, he's had a very bizarre life. Um, and he's not dictated by... Um, ideology. And that's what makes him, I think, in this job, unusual, 
because politicians, um, political leaders, tend to sort out their ideology first and then choose the issues on which they're going to um, act or take action on that basis. I think that Turnbull makes decisions much more like a CEO, you know. He um, will um, find an issue that needs addressing, ask a million clever people what they think, and then kind of wargame it and proceed on that basis. Now, um, that does sound like a sensible way to make decisions, but in politics it doesn't always work that way. And I think there are some great examples of where that method has gone just screamingly wrong just in the last year. The most obvious being um, the early in his leadership attempt to undertake some sort of tax reform. Um, which... And the result of it being rather than looking cautious and intelligent in approach is that it came to be seen as a failure to make a decision or or kind of a, a wavering on right, and, policy. Right, and that's, that's the very difficult thing about being a leader in politics. It's very different from being a leader in business, right? And, and the first difference, and I think that um, Turnbull struggled with this um, with working this out in his first term of leadership, which, as you remember, went no, not so well, um, <laughs> was that in a, in a political party, um, even the stupid people get a vote. So you're not just dealing with the smart people. The, you've got to deal with the stupid people as well. And I think that, um, uh, you know, stupid people are hugely influential in politics. I mean, not just, you know, people, uh, voters, but also dumb members of your caucus and parliamentary party. You know, you've got to deal with those people just because they may have crazy ideas or um, not be very good at things doesn't mean that they can't kill you, you know? <laughs> and, um, and in this case, the, the, the ideology is a binding factor. So if ideology right. isn't a primary driver, perhaps it becomes harder to keep hold of it. Well, if you're in a political right. party and you, can, um, and you can share an ideological direction and conviction, then it... Um, uh, capacity and, and stupidity or lack of it becomes less of a defining factor, right? Because you're all kind of barking in the same direction, <laughs> roughly. <laughs> and if you have a look at what's going on um, within the Liberal Party right now, it's all about ide ideology. That's the difference between um, what's happened over the last decade in the Labour Party, which wasn't about ideology. That was just about... Who gets what? Well, it was about... Um, personalities and just um, uh, dysfunctionality. I'm trying to think of a kind way to put it. Um, but it certainly Why wasn't about you... ideology. But I disagree, actually. Um, oh, thank God, we've disagreed. Um, All right. There's a lot of ideological colour and movement going on inside the government at the moment, and it's great fun. It's, you know, it's great, great fun. I mean, there is Senator Bernardi going out, getting people to sign up a petition for something I actually agree with, which is that the words offend and insult should be removed from Section 18C. But he's going out and doing this... There's your headline for the day, uh, and folks. Ma I've been, I've been Bernardi saying that for years. unity ticket. Oh, well... <laughs> Incidentally, do you know I went for a walk along the Senate corridor the other day and just I got a absolutely... minute. I didn't get a minute. No, 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 no. no, no. a minute. Come back. No, go well, on, go on. I want to talk to you about 18D. Go on, go on. You'll enjoy this... You walk along from the Senate chamber um, on the ground floor of the Senate and you go towards Hansard, you're trotting along and you hear, you, you go past C. Bernardi's office followed by P. Hansen's office. They're next door. <laughs> oh, that's sweet. But, <laughs> but um, or they can talk through the wall. Tap, 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 tap. 
Not when it's all of this York. is colourful. All of this is colourful. Um, but what's really going on inside the Liberal Party is a much more fundamental argument, which is an argument about money. And because the, the problem that the government has got is we are still trying to, they are still trying to pass the 2014 budget. That's, that's, you know, it's 2016, we're moving into 2017, but we're still trying to pass the 2014 budget. And the reason this has become intractably difficult is because of the money interests behind the Liberal Party demanding that they, meet, they be made to make no sacrifices to get, you know, to repair the budget. If not no sacrifices, then very, very, very few sacrifices. Um, and Turnbull knows, and the, and the leaders of the Liberal Party know, they're intelligent people, that this nation has become seized with the notion of equity again. Equity is a big issue in the politics of this country at the moment, and the Liberal Party is actually floundering around at the moment because it cannot, because of its money backers, present an equitable program to the Australian people. Now, at the same time, you've got all of this hilarity going on about, you know, well, it's not actually hilarious, but it's this bleak comedy of the equal marriage plebiscite, and you've got Bernardi going around trying to, you know, let, let people with, you know, decent, honest Australians with really deeply racist views be freer to, you know, get out there and, you know, scream at people from passing cars, because that's a very important part of public debate. That's all going on as well. But, but, but there's a, there is, a, I believe, a big shift happening in politics, not only in this country, but in other countries as well, where the demands for equity are being made strongly. And the 2014 budget is not an equitable document. And it brought, and it brought, it brought Abbott undone, and it is causing huge problems for the Liberal Party. If, Tony, if, if, if Malcolm Turnbull could go out there and say, I'm going to fix up more of the boondoggles of superannuation. I'm going to get rid of any more. We're not going to have any more um, negative gearing. We're going to reintroduce a modest, a really modest death duty on enormous estates. We're going to do this, 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 and this. Um, he, would, he would be able to rule this country for a long time, but he cannot go down the equitable path. And that's, I think, the fundamental political problem he faces. Mm. David, tell us about Bill Shorten. Oh, well, when I started to write about Bill Shorten, um, he was considered um, an accidental leader who should not really be leading the Labor Party, um, a dead bore, um, and won't be there for long. And I knew very little about Shorten, um, partly because to understand Shorten, you have to go into one of the strangest territories of politics in this country, which is the faction system of Victoria. And I was um, very chuffed when my editor, reading my faction chapter, when I'd finished it, said, David, it reads like a wildlife documentary. <laughs> <laughs> and the rise of Shorten um, is, about, is about years and years and years of um, manoeuvring behind closed doors. So unlike Malcolm Turnbull's career, where it blazed away in public um, and and, and you know, it was always reported. Malcolm made sure it was always reported. And while Bill Shorten is pretty good at getting publicity as a, as a union official and, you know, the various other things that he did on his long climb to power, his relatively swift climb to power, actually, um, so much of it was behind closed doors. And the challenge was to get behind those closed doors and look at what he actually did inside the Labour Party faction system, inside the AWU, 
um, and to make sense of it and to explain why this, you know, funny, funny little fella in many ways um, had beaten the man who seemed to be the inevitable heir, um, Anthony Albanese, um, and went on um, to perform in ways with quite unexpected success. Um, even at the beginning of this year, he was being still written off by the commentators, and indeed there were manoeuvres against him inside the Labour Party. As late as February. In, as, as late as February. But by March, he had turned the figures around, the polling figures around, and he was on a trajectory that led him to... It wasn't, I mean, he didn't nearly win the election, but he did, he did incredibly well. And, I mean, in the, in the week before the election, Annabelle and I did, did a bookshop um, presentation together, and my joke was... We did was, a bookshop. It makes it sound like a, ra a, a robbery of some kind. Well, <laughs> only the customers. Um, they, they bought in enormous numbers, of course. But... Um, but my joke for the night was, at the end of this week, one of us will be on the remainder table. <laughs> and, and it will be nothing to do with the quality of our work. Um, I thought that was quite a good joke. But, the, but, <laughs> but oddly enough, there's no sense whatever that Bill Shorten is on the remainder no. table at the moment. Um, <laughs> and he's proved to be what some, what some Labour figures, and Labour figures who didn't like him at all, were telling me when I first set out to work on the quarterly essay, was that he was a highly professional politician, very determined, and didn't make mistakes. And, and he is there where he is today with a very broad smile on his face. Well, this is the great... They're, they're a fascinating pair to compare, particularly through that lengthy campaign that was all Malcolm Turnbull's idea and that I think um, Bill Shorten ended up enjoying a lot more than Malcolm Turnbull did. Um, I actually think that Bill Shorten may be the only person, organism, carbon-based, in Australia who enjoyed every single second of those eight weeks. I mean, he, he really... He was just loving it. Uh, and I think... The interesting difference between them as campaigners, beyond the more broad and more obvious um, observation, which is that um, Malcolm Turnbull has been just far less successful in office than almost anyone predicted um, in the office of the leadership, and Bill Shorten has proved to be far more successful than anyone expected, um, is that during the campaign, Bill Shorten was doing quite difficult things that he did agree with, like um, trimming negative gearing, which has been just an axiomatic political no-go zone in this country for so long. Um, he did other just outright foolish political things, according to the orthodoxy, like pursuing carbon pricing um, so soon after his party had been so soundly punished for it. Mostly political leaders tend to run screaming from the room and never return, or at least not for 10 years, um, once uh, a punishment like that has happened to them. Um, so doing hard things that he did agree with, and I think Malcolm Turnbull suffered um, even though he was doing easier things that he didn't agree with. And that I think that that leads us to invites us to draw some conclusions about the value in campaigning of doing hard things that you do agree with and bearing the burden of convincing people, you know? I think that that's um, an art that has gone a bit soft in our politics in the last... this century, really. 
Well, Malcolm Turnbull did have the difficult task of convincing Australians that it was a good idea to give business a huge tax cut. Um, and and, he, and he, did approach, he did approach that with, with dedication. Um, not particularly... Wasn't hard in his own party room. Not, not particularly successfully. But I agree with you. I think Australians admire very much politicians who go out there with a principal difficult case to sell and, and sell it. Um, you said before that Malcolm was without ideology, um, but there's another problem about whether he is a, a politician um, without principle. And I mean, I think Malcolm Turnbull's a decent I man. I think I'm not saying I'm not saying that you know that he's desperately unprincipled, but but there is a level in Australia of of appreciating somebody who is sticking to their principles. And it was one of the see, it was one of the reasons, apart from sheer professional competence that John Howard was re-elected again and again and again in this country because we have, we have a wish for our leaders to be competent. We have a fundamental wish for our leaders to be competent. Um, but we also expect them to be professional mm. and, stick, and stick to their principles. I mean, because John Howard is so important, right? So he, and, which is why even with Howard you had people who didn't necessarily agree with him ideologically um, still voting for him because he was predictable and you knew what would you, you know you knew your, what you were going to get. I mean, you heard, yeah. heard that a lot coming through polling that people and found him. You know, that was certainly one of the attractions of Turnbull to people was the idea of someone of principle and and progressive and progressive and progressive, progressive, progressive and that yes, one but not the, just not just that. In that, in that euphoria of the first weeks after, um, after that spectacularly professional execution of Tony Abbott, I must say, it was, <laughs> it was certainly, you know, as, as defenestrations go, a word I think we should use more in this yes. country, especially as it happens so often. As Just watching And, and thank you to Jennifer, our Auslan could I see, could, could, I, could I see defenestration? นับกัดเนซาเอ่อนาวแต่นับกัดเนซานอตแฟร์แต่จัสแต่จัสแต่จัสแต่จัสแต่จัสแต่จัสแต่จัสแต่จัสแต่จัสแต่จัสแต่
he made it kind of imperative for people to join, you know, Bill Shorten's kids, they were called. You know, he was at Monash University, but he had a train of followers at Melbourne University as well. And he had, he could recruit. Now, I'll get back to it in a negative sense in a second, but the positive sense of it was that he could go into institutions like the AWU in Victoria when he went in first, not in the usual way. Most legally trained, ambitious Labor politicians go into unions as legal officers. But he didn't want to do that. He didn't want to take the, the, the Bob Hawke path. He went in as an organiser. He wanted to actually go into the factories and learn how to organise. And what he did was, you know, spectacularly good recruiting and things, but he has this knack of being able to knit together broken, broken institutions. And as Greg Combey said to me one day, the AWU at the time that Shorten went into it in Victoria was a shot duck. Isn't that a wonderful expression? <laughs> a shot duck. And he pulled it. was it, great in Auslan as well. And he did the kinds of deals, reached the kinds of arrangements that pulled it back together. Now, there's always a question with Shorten's arrangements, another great union expression, of whether in those deals he settles soft. Does he settle soft? Um, but he does these deals, and so when- So settle for too little. On settle that. for too little. Yeah. Settle soft, gorgeous expression. And then the Labor Party that he led after the 2013 defeat, the 2013 defeat was one of the worst defeats in Labor history. The party was a mess and he has pulled it together to come you know, to a, an extremely credible result earlier this year. Now, the deal-making is extraordinary, and, and the factional deal-making is his particular skill. And unlike other Labour leaders who've moved up through the union movement into the political, you know, up there in, in politics, Shorten has, not, has, Shorten has not given up his factional controls. Mm. So that we, we all saw um, the extraordinary factional plays going on around the shadow cabinet and whether or not Kim Carr, that, you know, that you know, public school headmaster from the, from the Pleistocene age, um, uh, <laughs> would survive. Now, for Shorten, it's crucial that Carr survives because Carr, because Carr was part of this, and read my essay, part of this extraordinary factional deal that brought the stability pact into existence. I love the names and of these. They have, they, they have these great names. Yeah. It's all renewal and stability and all of these. What and the and what, they are, what they are are these fabulous betrayals and rearrangements and, and promises. You know, every time, oh, these promises. And the, and the chains of promises that go all the way out to the outer suburbs. I mean, somebody, somebody will agree to vote for Bill Shorten in some sort of council here, you know, in some sort of union... union and some uh, young uh, Labour conference will... Right out there in the suburbs, somebody's niece becomes the deputy mayor <laughs> of something. I mean, the chains of deals are just completely amazing. But what produced companion. was the most stable Labour Party. The last three years has seen the most stable Labour Party for, for a decade or so. Now, inside the Labour Party, there's a real argument about whether that stability is in fact stultifying. But nevertheless, the 
the Liberal Party was unable to paint Labor in the last election campaign as a wilderness of internecine warfaring and factions, because that that's what was happening to them. <laughs> I, love that I love that they're bored of stability already. What's it been? Five minutes? <laughs> well, we have... We're going to, have to take, be able to take some questions from you, so if you have something that you would like to ask David or Annabelle, um, microphones up the top, microphones down the bottom. Before we do that, while you're getting yourselves and your questions ready, um, the big question, of course, is, you know, this is, we've got, you know, really, you know, two minutes to deal with this question. Um, I mean, you've talked in a contrasting way about the anarchic, comic elements of it, but also the fact that, you know, we do really do love uh, competence and professionalism and a kind of a sense of integrity and purpose. What all of these things leave out are what are the, you know, what are the issues that are not going to be dealt with because of the kind of government that we've elected? Um, that there are a whole lot of issues that were not even up for grabs in the election in the sense that we were being offered the same, rather, you know, perhaps unattractive solution by both parties. And, um, you know, what are the things that need to be done by this government? Well, some of the, not some of the issues, um, some of the problems with the way the government um, is approaching this term are actually not so much to do with the way the, electric, the electorate has constituted the government, but strategic decisions that the government has taken internally, or decisions more particularly that the Prime Minister's taken, about how policy is going to be decided within his ranks. Now, like all political leaders, he has learnt most deeply from the most hideous things that have happened to him in the past, right? That is a very common experience. And so he remembers his first period in leadership of the Liberal Party, where he stuck to his guns on the policy of climate change, of carbon pricing, and was uh, defenestrated. <laughs> so good, thank you. Um, for his pain. I thought it was right? a bit different that time. <laughs> there didn't seem to be the out the window no, piece. No. Anyway. So, um, and so, when he became leader right for the now. second time, he took a very, very different approach from the get-go. First thing he did was sit down with Barnaby Joyce and re-sign the coalition agreement, and that is the exact moment where he, dis where he um, committed the government to revisiting competition policy. He gave the National Party responsibility for water, and very significantly, Settled he signed... Soft. He signed um, uh, an undertaking to pursue the plebiscite on same-sex marriage. So, um, that settled a lot of things about the way the government would approach various um, issues, right? And I remember um, towards the end of last year, there was this amazing moment in question time. It was when the Safe Schools um, uh, program was being hotly fought. It set the uh, tone for this government to spend heaps of time internally arguing about things that really weren't going to change as a result of that argument. Um, and. Uh, I remember Bill Shorten calling out across the chamber to Malcolm Turnbull and saying, rather appropriately given the subject under discussion, never give in to bullies, Malcolm, because they'll always come back wanting more. And I've thought of that a few times just over the course of um, this term so far already. Um, I think it's going to be very difficult for this government or for this Prime Minister to address climate change in the way that he wants to, I think. Um, but and it, yes, it's not just climate change. I mean, I think one of the things that's, that's more and more obvious 
um, in Australia is that really neither side, of, neither side of politics is willing to address issues which the Australians very, very clearly want settled. One of them is climate change. I mean, it's indisputable. Australia, the, the polling figures are stronger and stronger and stronger that Australians want real, a real approach to dealing with climate change. It's, that's not happening in government. We want euthanasia. That's never going to be addressed by government. We want, um, we want, uh, it's very clear that, that well, we just, those, who've, we, those who've thought about this would really like a federal version of ICAC. And there's a very fine piece of Peter Harcher's in the Sydney Morning Herald today, once again explaining that politicians don't want to give us that. Politicians don't really want to give us the one thing that we absolutely require about political, um, political donations, which is we, we must know who gave the money before we vote, not after. And that, and neither side, of, I mean, Shorten is saying things like he was, you know, interested in looking at the issue. It's dead easy. The United States of America, which is awash with money, is able to give it's able to give weekly reports on who's given money to what political We are going to learn who paid for the 2016 elections in February next year. It is outrageous. There's a whole list of these things which Australians want. Australians say they are happy to be taxed more in order to have better education and health in this country. No government, not, and the opposition is not addressing that either. The, it's not just what Malcolm will do and, and how Malcolm deals with his own party. It's about the way in which the political culture in this country will not address a range of things which Australians want to see happen. Um, and, and I don't know how that comes, how, how that ends, but, but, but we, are, we defer in this country too much to our politicians, allowing them to set the agenda when we have wishes of our own which just do not become part of the day-to-day -day political discourse. That's my rage for the day. <laughs> now, we have some people here with questions. Can we go to microphone number two, please? Uh, thanks very much. I really enjoyed that talk. I really agree with David about inequity, but I feel that the worst inequity visited upon the Australian people is a political one of our Senate, where it only takes 10% of the vote or less to elect a senator in Tasmania as it does in New <laughs> South Wales. Now, that's the worst gerrymander of all time, surely. My solution, which I'd like you to sort of ponder, is that we abolish the monarchy as our have a republic. Therefore, we abolish the sovereignty of the states. Ergo, no Senate. All right. No, no, I'm sorry. It doesn't, it doesn't work like that. Look... The, <laughs> The gerrymander of the Senate is the price we paid to have Australia. That is how we came to have a federation. And yes, Tasmania has almost more senators than it has GPs, but, <laughs> but the result is we have Australia. Now, as to getting rid of the, uh, getting rid of the monarchy, Britain is, the United Kingdom is doing that for us. The Australian... <laughs> The Australian, we, we seem to be incapable of doing it, but the United Kingdom is, is, is heavily at work on this. The Australian Constitution says our head of state is the head of state of the United Kingdom. It seems that there will be no United Kingdom quite soon. And when that happens, um, we, uh, we are freed of the crown. Um, unfortunately, our Constitution doesn't provide any alternative mechanism for having a national leader, but we will be free of the House of 
at Mountbatten, Windsor. Um, and, and look, I think there's, I've just been in the UK for a month. I think they do a splendid job in the United Kingdom, but we don't need them here. Um, and it seems that the United Kingdom will soon be over and will be free of that. But the Senate, sir, is with us while Australia lasts. <laughs> I can't add to that. No. <laughs> Microphone number one. Uh, David, you um, have talked about the things that we're not getting in our federal parliament, you know, that are not being raised, but neither you nor Annabelle have actually discussed the people who are going to be actually making the decisions for us, and they're the people on the crossbenches. Um, so, and it seems to me that very few of those are going to be addressing any of the issues that you've just raised, you know. Um, ICAC, have, have any of the crossbenches benches mentioned that? What about the other things you mentioned? Uh, what about the, the tenor of our parliament in the next three years uh, with the crossbenchers deciding on the most important um, issues? Electoral donation reform is usually championed on the crossbenchers and royally ignored by the major parties. That's what tends to happen. The Greens are very active on that particular point. And um, ICAC, look, I can't tell you out of the 11 Senate crossbenchers exactly which... Um, support a federal ICAC, but I, my guess is that more than half would. Um, yep. So, the way things work with crossbenchers, though, in the Senate is that um, you know you've got a government that needs to get eight of those eleven on any given issue if they're being opposed by Labor and the Greens, right? And that's why you've got them all taking trays of cupcakes around to Pauline Hanson's office, because she's got three, right? So it just stands to reason if you can get three in the bag at once, then hold them there while you get more of them in. Um, it, it, it makes sense to start with the big chunks first. So the big chunks are um, uh, Xenophon with three and Hanson with three. But Beyond that, it becomes a question of horse trading. So the way a crossbencher um, proceeds with an issue that is not supported by either the government or the, um, or the opposition is to say, well, OK, I'll give you that over there uh, if you consider giving me this precious thing that only I believe in. And that's why in the last session of Parliament alone, there was something like 80 Senate inquiries that were established, because this is the way Senate crossbenchers get their causes pursued. They establish an inquiry, which means that you've got all these Senate staff, staffers and committee staff having nervous breakdowns because all of a sudden they're working on 20 or 30 inquiries instead of two or three, which is what they used to do. Um, so, look, Adam, I think... I just, uh, just on the point of Senate inquiries, having mm. been in the Senate myself many years ago, I know that Senate inquiries hardly ever lead anywhere. So no, that's they just uh, take a lot of time and effort and they sink without trace. Well, they tend to be fed out to new senators on the crossbench, don't they, though? They're very, useful devices. They're very useful devices for gathering information, and they may not lead to government decisions, but they do, uh, they do have great value for public debate, as you have demonstrated yourself. <laughs> yes. Next question, I think. Okay. okay. From microphone number two, please. Um, I've got a question in two parts for both of you. David, you started to talk about Malcolm not necessarily living to his principles. Yeah. Um, do you think there's any chance that Turnbull would back down on a plebiscite? And the second part of the question is, do you both think that there's any chance of any Liberal parties crossing the floor to vote for a private member's bill for gay marriage? Um... Look, the dream notion would be that the plebiscite would be rejected by the Senate. 
Malcolm Turnbull would then say to his party room, I've done all I can, let's take it to a free vote in Parliament. I understand from my friends in Canberra who've been speaking to, to around, you know, speaking to politicians, that is fanciful. Um, if the plebiscite is rejected, it won't happen. Um, now, uh, I, I think that I think that that's, you know, we're just we're, all that's to be, about to be determined. I think is whether this this issue and to have lived long enough, to have lived long enough to see whether or not a couple of blokes can marry becomes a crucial, a crucial element of Australian federal politics is amazing, just amazing, deeply pleasing and amazing. <laughs> but, but, but I'm told, I'm told that the net effect of the plebiscite being rejected will be that this just trundles on um, for, for years. Three more years. Yep. I agree. I think a lot of engagement great. rings and no wedding rings. No Liberal Party backbenchers crossing to support any of the private members' bills on gay marriage? Well, you've got um, the greatest likelihood is that the private members... You'll get private members' bills from the Greens and from the ALP. I just think it's highly unlikely that any of the Libs will cross the floor. Um, if they're not... that. The government's argument, and I think it's been accepted across the um, the backbench, is that this is the method that they've adopted, and it's the one that they took to the election as well, right? Like, I mean, it's hard um, so soon after an election to throw all that um, out the window. I mean, I know it's not unprecedented in politics, but my feeling from talking to a lot of people this week is that this sort of idea that somehow um, it's a game of double bluff and that when the plebiscite falls over, as I expected to, that there'll be this sort of like, oh, OK, let's just have the free vote anyway, I think is just not true. Let's take a question from microphone number four. Hi, Annabelle and David. Uh, thank you for the talk. I was interested in your thoughts about the quality of debate in this country. I mean, if we think about the last election, for example, we were offered a three-word slogan, slogan of dubious effectiveness and a blatant lie about Medicare. Um, who do we blame for that? Is the quality of our politicians just getting worse and worse, or is the electric just getting dumber? Let's not mince words. I actually don't think that is all we were offered at the election. You know, I mean, there are always slogans, and there are reasons for slogans. People have to remember something to say again and again and again, um, and there has to be something that'll fit on a bumper sticker, you know? But realistically, what we were offered at the last election was a kind of a reasonably large philosophical differing, uh, difference in approach, you know? You had one party that said, OK, the path to prosperity is uh, tax cuts for business, and that's how we're going to save the world by, um, you know, the sort of projections of growth that were sort of hung off that. Now, that's an argument that you can make, right? On the other hand, you've got um, this uh, a different approach that's about um, chopping negative gearing and making um, bigger investments in health and education. Um, and I thought they were two quite different economic approaches. And as I mentioned earlier, you also had um, a, uh, an offering on climate that was uh, very different as well. 
I don't think it was as simple as you, as you say. Um, I think that slogans will be with us always. But I thought that of the recent elections that we've had, this one was probably um, one in which the parties were offering something different from each other. I, I agree with Annabelle. I think, in fact, there were some very there were some good debaters in the last election. I mean, the, you know, some speakers, some people are better at it than others. I think it's a pity that the that the government didn't allow more of the ministers a freer say. I would have liked to have heard what Susan Lee had to say about the Medicare scare campaign run by the Labor Party. She's a very able minister, but she was silenced during the during the campaign. I would have liked to have heard more about her. Um, there are some eloquent speakers on both sides. I think, you know, when Chris Bowen opens his mouth, I think Australians tend to listen. But, but and then to immediately, for me to immediately contradict the point I've just made, <laughs> I, think, I think the underlying, um, the underlying thing about the last election campaign, which I think drives many Australians to distractions, is the way in which the economy is discussed. It's just this bizarre, discussion of the economy, which, which is just not real, you know, and, and, you know, debt is evil. Well, debt is not evil. Debt can be a very powerful force for good in an, in, in an economy. Balancing the budget, yes, we must at times balance the budget, of course, but, but this is not, you know, undermining Australia in the way it is said. You know, tax does not kill enterprise. Tax actually backs enterprise when it's properly done. There's a way of talking about the, the economy, which is just weird political speak, and it's shared by both sides of politics. You read the economics pages of the very good commentators, people like Ross Gittens, and you listen to the political debate, and they seem to be talking about two different subjects. Um, and that, I think, is for me the most disappointing thing about debate. It's not the slogans, it's not the lack of eloquence, but it's the way in which we, in, it's the way in which we argue over the most fundamental thing that is being decided at an election campaign, which is economic direction of the country. If only that debate could be as intelligent and, um, and as intelligent and well, and well thought through, I think we'd all be a lot better off. Now. We have completely run out of time. Completely. <laughs> but I don't, want to, I don't want to leave us on economic debate only. It was a bit serious. What a, you know. No, no, no. Excellent. But <laughs> we have, we're one week into in, uh, government, sitting on a knife edge. We have our special Senate waiting to entertain us for the next three years. But I would like a prediction for the future from both of you about will we regret this government? Will it mean that we vote dramatically differently next time? Will they do things that we're proud of? Oh, that's, a, that's a hideously tricky question. And <laughs> one, one idle speculation about the future. Idle? <laughs> one incredibly analytical and intelligent speculation about the future. No, one scared. One scared and cautious thing. You cannot... You cannot possibly tell. Remember what Macmillan said about what really matters in politics, which is the response to events. And, and this, government, this government has yet to be seen responding to events. I think it is much too soon to write off Malcolm Turnbull. It is much too soon. But um, the question marks are all there, but it's, we can't sit here in September of 2016 and talk sensibly about what might be happening in 2019 when God knows we have to do it again. We have to go through and do it all again. 
with the ferret is going to be older now <laughs> than it was then. Can I make one observation about this parliament, which I think just got overshadowed a little bit this week because it's so eye-catching in every other um, sense. I went to the Welcome to Country ceremony in the Great Hall on Tuesday, and it's a ceremony at which uh, the Ngunnawal people welcome this sort of crazy gang to, to their uh, place. And in the front row um, get to sit the Indigenous politicians um, who come to Canberra. And this time there were more than ever before. So five identified Indigenous politicians, um, the four that you've heard of, um, including, Jack, uh, including Linda Burney, the first Indigenous woman in the lower house, but also um, Jackie Lambie, who, um, according to the changes that the Tasmanian government's made uh, just weeks ago uh, in deciding who can identify themselves as Aboriginal and who can't, uh, joined that group of people and sat in the front row. And that, was, um, that growing number is a good thing to see. Thank you. Now, Annabelle and David will be in the foyer signing copies of their brilliant essays. Oh. Well, he's looking a bit uncertain about that, but he has just come back from Edinburgh. I thought my essay had sold out completely. <laughs> reprint after re. I mean, Annabelle, I know, has still got some from the original print. <laughs> uh, I want to thank our uh, panellists. I want to thank Jen for her excellent work. And of course, thank you to all of you and to everybody in Dubbo, uh, Bermagui and Points East and West. Thank you. If you enjoyed that talk, please subscribe to our iTunes channel for our fortnightly podcast.